This episode of Excuse the Intermission is presented in partnership with the Grand Cinema. The Grand Cinema is the South Sound's nonprofit home for independent, international, and local film. The theater strives to enrich the lives and enhance the cultural vitality of the greater Tacoma community through the art of film. The Grand Cinema is dedicated to providing their signature art house movie going experience in a safe and healthy fashion. There is something for everyone at the Grand Cinema. Along with their wonderful weekly programming, they are also home to the Weird Elephant Late Night Film Series, the Silver Screen Society, Free Family Flicks, and Tacoma's Outdoor Movie Series. You can also inquire about theater rentals at the Grand Cinema by contacting their box office or website. The staff and volunteers cannot wait to make your experience at the movies a memorable one, so grab your friends, grab your tickets, and don't forget to stop at the concession stand for the Grand Signature Popcorn. The Grand Cinema is located at 606 Fawcett Avenue in Tacoma, Washington, and open seven days a week. You can find them online at www.grandcinema.com and on Instagram and Facebook at The Grand Cinema. How's it? I'm Alex McCauley. I'm Max Fosberg. And I am Grant Colombini. And this is Excuse the Intermission, a discussion show surrounding the master of horror. A week ago, John Carpenter celebrated his 75th birthday, which gives us an excuse to talk about the famed director's legendary career. From anthology films to writing and composing some of the 20th century's most iconic stories and scores, the man is responsible for ushering in a new generation of genre fans and is at the helm of some of our favorite movies. Ahead on today's pod, we'll break down each of his directorial efforts in a complete career rankings episode, which starts on the other side of this break. This episode is presented in partnership with the Grand Cinema and their Black Film Series. In the month of February, the Grand Cinema will play host to three influential films from Black filmmakers in celebration of Black History Month. Tickets are available now for the February 10th screening of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, February 17th screening of Rick Fimayura's The Wood, and February 24th screening of Spike Lee's Mo Betta Blues. 7.15 is the start time for each of those shows. Be sure to stick around afterwards for a post-movie pop-up event featuring beer, wine, and local vendors. To purchase tickets and to find more information on this event, please visit www.grandcinema.com or visit the box office located at 606 Fawcett Avenue in beautiful downtown Tacoma. Before we get started, we want to remind you that if you feel what we do here on Excuse the Intermission holds value, we are live on Patreon. You can support the show by becoming either an associate producer at the cost of just $3 a month or an executive producer at the cost of $8 a month, and in return we'll be treated to all kinds of bonus material. We really enjoy creating extra content, so please consider subscribing. All right, how are we doing today, Grant and Max? I'm a little nervous to kick this show off. Is there, Max, maybe you would know, is there a Guinness Book of World Record for the longest podcast ever recorded? Because we might break, we might break that mark today uh, once we get going here. So first, I'm thinking maybe any unrelated movie watching news or notes that you guys want to chat about first. I know you guys both saw the Weird Elephant screening of Skinamarink and it seems like you did might. Did you see it too? I did not. Oh, no. you did not. I did maybe not that go. was our buddy Derek, yeah. who I saw log it yeah. on Letterboxd as well around the Silver Screams podcast, but... Max, I know you have some thoughts. Yeah, listen, uh, it's it's uh, unique. Uh, it's a unique situation that this movie is uh, kind of sweeping the nation right now. Um, but man, it is uh, pretty soulless uh, from what I felt watching it. Uh, you know, 
it's really hard to make a movie. It's funny because seeing it with Derek, who is a amateur filmmaker, filmmaker um, at the end of it, the first thing he said, he turned to me and he was just like, I guess that's all it fucking takes these days. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Uh, it Because it does feel like it, it should have been – it should have been a short on YouTube. Um, and it's – Again, it's it's a unique experience. Uh, I I don't think it has a lot of value in a theater with a crowd. I think it would be much scarier at home, like on your phone in bed. Um, but uh, it just not a lot of not a lot of meat on the bone for Is me. Is that personally. because like in a theater? Because I know it's supposed to be kind of a disorienting, isolated viewing experience as an audience member. So do you think that maybe that's because when you're in a theater and you have people getting up to go to the bathroom mm. or whatever it may be, all of a sudden you're just like so easily taken out of it? Or is it, is it really just the quality that, of the work? Well, I mean, there's long stretches of this movie where you're just staring at Lego blocks. Um, it's extremely experimental. Hmm. And it doesn't even, you know, it, it was kind of billed as like, if you're afraid of the dark, like you're going to be scared, but like really it doesn't even use the dark. Well, yeah, I kept thinking that it would be sort of like the gin. No, which we loved from a couple mm, years yeah, ago. Not no. The, the, there literally is no, there's no real plot. It's literally just off centered shots of this house. You never see any faces. You never see, you know, you, you don't get any character. Even of names. the children. Yeah. Wow. You just see their feet. Most of the time. Um, and and the runtime on this is how what it's it? like over a hundred minutes. Wow. It's uh and it's 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 pretty grueling. Um because it it literally is just these long shots to like lull you to sleep and then it's like a really loud sound effect with jump you know, scare. A cheap jump scare mm-hmm. to try and get you. Um, it's too bad. Yeah. It I, I was I was pretty let down by it, honestly. Um but you know that's that's how film goes sometimes. Do they ever once do the skinnamarink a dink a dink skinnamarink a do? Nope. Uh, see, and like seeing that that's the name, I immediately think of like if I heard children's voices singing that in the dark, I'd shit my pants and look for the quickest or some way. like busted toy or something. Yeah, you know, or or some it. or recording, you know, like mm-hmm. a uh, a warped recording on a vinyl or something like or a cassette. Like that would be terrifying. From what I've read, so, it sounds like they maybe use some um, like public domain black and white cartoons to yeah, try to yeah, pull they, off one of those yeah, creepy scenes. Even, even that, you're not really. I mean, a little bit. They use it a little bit. Okay, but they, again, nothing really lingers long enough to to be scared of anything. I mean, the voice, I guess, that you hear throughout the film is kind of creepy, but again, nothing. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And it, it it feels like a creepypasta, you know, short story. Yeah, right. Well, it comes to Shudder February 2nd, I believe. Mm-hmm. So maybe the at-home experience, that'll be when I give it a shot. And yeah, I would. I, see I, if that changes. It, it's odd. I would recommend watching it at home mm-hmm. because then you're in a house in the dark by yourself. It might be a little bit more effective that way. Yeah, sounds like a movie I'm going to watch on Wikipedia. 
it's yeah i don't know i i, I wasn't a fan was not a fan <laughs> but i did go see plane oh, gerard I, butler i yeah. saw you log this fucking I... that scottish bastard he's done it again garbage crime at its finest uh it's a ridiculous stupid action movie and it's great it's a lot of fun Mike Coulter is huge. I was. I that was. Is, he's one ask. of the big. He's got to be one of the biggest men in the world. He Why do you think giant. he was Luke Cage? He's, he's giant. He's. <laughs> uh, I feel like he could punch someone into tomorrow. Yeah, that movie's got a lot of great one-liners. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. Um, but a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Anything recent for you, Grant? Um, I mean, other than doing some carpenter mm-hmm. homework, gearing up for what we're going to be talking about in just a little bit, um, I did randomly, uh, as just for some reason, I, I put on a YouTube clip on YouTube TV, and after it showed... What it, is this YouTube you speak of? I, yeah, right? <laughs> um, but I, it was like some Bo Bur- I was showing some friends, like some Bo Burnham thing, and then the next thing that rolls, or no, it wasn't even that situation, but it was just another, like, I showed a clip on, like, a trailer. I was showing, I, was, I think I was showing my girlfriend a, a trailer, and uh, and then after it was over, we just didn't do anything, and we were just talking, and then all of a sudden, a movie started. And as the movie started, I saw that it was starring Henry Cavill and Bruce Willis, and I was like, oh, what the hell? So, <laughs> so I was like, all right. Let me let me gear up and watch the cold light of day, and let me tell you that this is the most bonkersly bad movie I have seen. Maybe might it might it's in the top ten worst movies I've ever seen. Wow, it is it is so bad that you have top build people. This is Henry Cavill right after Man of Steel, so as he's picking up steam as as a star. And he is not good in it. He's not a good actor in it. Bruce Willis gets killed off in the first 30 minutes. Mm. So top build and they just immediately get rid of him. Sigourney Weaver is the big baddie. Uh, There's some other people that you would recognize. Everyone can survive the uh, pain threshold of a thousand men and, (laughs) and, and be fine. Um, you can die several times and then, then it doesn't. And then at the end, it does not take much for you to die. Like <laughs> you survive this car accident, but then this punch to the face kills you. Like, it's just, it's just a bad movie about Henry Cavill is like a wall street guy and his family gets kidnapped because of this briefcase he has. And it's like, it's meant to be, it's just this long threshold. And then like the end, it's just awful. So I didn't watch anything good. Uh, lately, but I did watch something bad. So if you want, if you want to watch something bad, which sometimes you do, turn on Cold Light of Day free on YouTube TV. Free on <laughs> free YouTube. On YouTube. Wow. But uh, I think it was the. I think it, you know Henry got it out of his system. You know that and what was he in the Immortals or or something mm. like that? I think he got those out of his system, and then and then now we see him doing some good stuff. But that <laughs> movie was not it. <laughs> uh, speaking of you know what's going to come in the next few weeks here on the show tomorrow morning the day of this recording uh tomorrow morning we have the oscar nominee mm-hmm. very excited 5 30 a.m so set those alarm clocks streaming on disney plus and i believe twitter somewhere but i digress um i revisited nope this last weekend and 
I don't know why there isn't a bigger campaign for Kiki Palmer I was supporting actress. I just talking about this today. Holy jeez, is she amazing in that movie. Do you think it's because she's the leading actress and that she gets washed out in that category? It's it's sort of that category fraud thing that we're talking about yeah. where it's like she is like the top billed actress in the film. But I would say that her and Daniel Kaluuya basically share screen time and, you know, they're supporting each other. I don't know. It's just Why is it no getting really any award buzz? A few technical ones would be pretty cool to see maybe editing or cinematography drop tomorrow morning. But Kiki's really the one because we just had this conversation like last week when we were talking about how cool it is to see this big push for Angela Bassett right mm-hmm. now. But at the same time, we were like, she's not really going up against anybody. I think that like you add Kiki in there and all of a sudden it gets really interesting because I think folks would ride for that movie. Everyone loved Nope. So, yeah, revisiting that. She she really stood out this last rewatch. Um. And then also, I had to break up the uh, the carpenter. The carpenter. I saw this flow. on Letterbox, and I'm so interested to see what the thought and process did, on this was. Well, there was just there was a little bit of a rom com movie swap that occurred over here this past weekend, where I had mentioned that I had never seen the film Thirteen Going on Thirty to mm-hmm. someone, and <laughs> the film, the, and they were like, "Listen, man." Next year's 2004 movie draft. Better watch out. Oh, that old oh, crowd pleaser. That is that is the that is the hot ticket. Yeah, on, yeah, on the next yeah, draft. Yeah, Let, me yeah. um, Let me tell you. Let me tell you. And and yeah, I mean, you know what? Charming, funny, Andy Circus and just a regular say. role. Pretty good. <laughs> also, though, it has that weird Tom Hanks big thing going on, where the more you think about it, the creepier it gets. Mm. Where it's this 13 year old girl trapped in a woman's body and. Mm-hmm. She, getting hit on by they try to they, they muddle it a little bit by it's like her childhood best friends uh-huh. but but then also She's it's also still... dating like a new york ranger or some like hockey yeah. player <laughs> yeah like, it, it gets messy but it's a lot of fun and then i was able to then show the upside of anger and that's a movie that i just ride for you know it's it's my ace i put it in my letterbox it's like the ace at my sleeve whenever i have to contribute that and vicky christina barcelona whenever i have to contribute to the rom-com discourse if someone's like oh yeah i love these movies those you know more comedic dramas that's costner and that's costner and joan allen yeah yeah um went back and looked at the best actress category from that year and joan allen got completely robbed i think she's incredible in that movie just a really fun young ensemble cast of actresses as well like um, Carrie Russell and Evan Rachel Wood, Erica Christensen, Alicia Witt, really good stuff there across the board. Um, so it was it was kind of fun to just throw that curveball into my weekend and, and break up all the Carpenter stuff. But we are here to talk about John Carpenter today. Before we do, are uh-huh. we are we going to dive into AD for Brady? Uh, have you guys seen this, this oh trailers God. for this movie? I, I cannot actually. stand the trailers. <laughs> I think there's a premiere up in Seattle's actually getting a premiere here in a couple of weeks. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> Wild stuff. Is Sally, that going to be the one Sally that gets us Field to was... do the uh, sports movie Hall of Fame? <laughs> maybe, maybe we do a seven category re- review on that. Full, and then... full breakdown, yeah. <laughs> Sally Field's the only enticing part because it's Sally Field. Everyone else, I'm like, what has happened? Why, why are you doing this to your career? <laughs> wild um wonder maybe we can get tom on the pod and see what he thinks about it <laughs> Let's um, get gronk because he's actually tom I, tom I don't think is in the movie i think they get like shots of him to clips. use him gronk you see in the trailer and he is just obviously playing a caricature of himself mm-hmm. which which is which is what is, he does, which is, what he does which naturally is, yeah, yeah yeah which is enticing which is like oh, i could see that guy but 
I don't know. Everything else about that trailer is weird. Those letterbox reviews will be funny to read. <laughs> um, okay, so yes, we have gathered here today because yours truly shares a birthday with one of our favorite filmmakers and someone who hasn't made a feature film in over 10 years. So our opportunities to talk about him at length have been a bit few and far between. I'm, of course, referring to American filmmaker John Carpenter. Carpenter's career has spanned over four decades, and he has made some of the most iconic films in cinema history. His early career is marked by his ability to blend genres together to create unique films that are both entertaining and thought-provoking. He is a continued inspiration to filmmakers everywhere, and his legacy will continue to live on whether or not he ever steps back into the director's seat. We have certainly expressed our affinity for his work in the past. We've held a screening of The Thing at our 100-episode party. We've included Halloween in our 1970s Horror Hall of Fame. And we've even retired They Live into the ETI rafters as an untouchable classic that should never be remade. But now is our first full opportunity to dive into the entire filmography. So let's start this conversation like a band of scientists isolated in Antarctica <laughs> and try to determine some exposure. Uh, so when, when did the conversation um, of John Carpenter and when did the world of John Carpenter really come to you guys? And then how has your relationship to his movies grown? We'll be back after a quick break. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast Audio Branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Well, I th I think Halloween was was the first Carpenter. Now, granted, I I don't think I was aware when I first saw Halloween what who Carpenter was or even really what who directors were. Um but I, I sounds like a lovely childhood. Yeah. Sounds like you saw this movie very early. Yeah, Halloween was like one of the first horror movies that I remember my dad sitting me down and being like, "This is like a really really scary movie and very important to the genre." Um, Carpenter is so interesting because he's such a cowboy. Like he's such he is he is such a blue collar working man's director, like a renaissance man, right? He's like he's not he, he's not Spielberg because he doesn't have the mass appeal. But then he's not like an auteur like Lynch or Malick because, you know, he his stuff never really gets that deep. Um, he is just he is such a master at the B movie. And I, I think he's stayed true to that throughout his career. Like, you know, he often talks about how much he loves Howard Hawk films and like those 50s monsters and uh, sci fi B movies and I just I, he's always done it his way. Um he's got a very unique I, I feel like vision for each film. Uh you can always kind of tell it's a John Carpenter's film. Um it's at the least crew that he works with too, right? And that yeah, helps a lot. Right. Yeah, he's he's always got people coming back uh to his films. Um but yeah, he he is he is such a I don't know, he, I, watching his stuff this week, I was just like, wow, like this guy just he makes movies not for a paycheck, but like it is like he just straps his boots up and like makes a movie. Um, 
and and you know I, I i was delighted to to go back and and watch all his stuff well most of his stuff i didn't i didn't get to four of the 18 that we're going to talk about today um but yeah uh just and and easily digestible as well right yeah he's not one of these guys like you know you mentioned like spielberg i think of some of the other people in league with him ridley scott and those folks um, Robert Zemeckis, even where sometimes their movies, whether or not they're, they're epic action films or kind of the touchy feely stuff, almost all of those guys have at least two to three, like 150 minute movies. Mm, mm-hmm. I don't think Carpenter's made anything that goes over two hours. Really? Not like, really. He packs a punch Yeah, and then you're, you're, you're in, you're out. And, and he's super pessimistic too, right? Like not a lot of happy endings yeah, in his movies, uh, which also makes him kind of a realist and like grounded in, in a weird way, even though he does some of these like supernatural stuff. What was your first exposure, Grant? Well, I think my first exposure, and it leads me into like the word I think of Carpenter, which is just visionary, which is my first exposure to him was like not a movie. It was just the name, John Carpenter, John Carpenter, John Carpenter, John Carpenter, whether it's Halloween, whether it's the thing, whether it's his music, whether it's his movies, living under the umbrella of two older brothers that didn't grow up in the 80s, but kind of grew off of 80s exposure that you know, radioactively came down to me. And a lot of these like John Carpenter, like soundtracks, like I listen to and like love listening to because it reminds me of this nostalgia. I think my first movie that I saw was Halloween of his. The thing was not too far beyond that. Christine was always on TV. So I always saw like random clips of that and you would hear the same you know, soundtrack, you would hear you, the, the, and that leads me into the visionary. It's the thematic. It's the, it's the residual rewatching some of these and watching some new ones for the first time. Like, you know, it's a Carpenter film. If you like, you put a blindfold on, like what movie is this? Like, well, I know it's John Carpenter yeah. <laughs> just by, by the sound of it. And going to what you said about like mastering B movies, like I wouldn't necessarily put it in B. I'd put it like a B or B a, like he is in his own, Feel well, his style can elevate even C level movies mm. to feel more accomplished. And, I think, and, and then you look at his producer credits, you look at his writing credits, you look at his just thanks credits, and people and the ripple effect this guy has. Like, sure, he's never going to get an Oscar. I don't know if he has one or if he ever will get one. Probably not. But you look at what the, his work does in a ripple effect into the world, like, holy shit, like, this guy is incredible. It, so it was really fun kind of watching these and seeing, I mean, when you think John Carpenter, you think Halloween, you think horror, you think suspense. And then you watch some of these other movies and like, the guy has a sense of humor. Mm. The guy has a sense of fantasy. And so it's really cool to kind of like see where his mind goes. And then the fact that he doesn't l- limit himself, he doesn't limit himself to, oh, I I was really successful on Halloween, so I should just do horror. No, he goes on to do a bunch of other crazy, crazy films. So that in it, in and of itself, but I think more than anything, it's the 80s sound of John Carpenter that has been the most iconic for me. And, and that's like, a decade where he's really firing on all cylinders. Yeah. And then you, you even listen to what he does beyond that, and it still resonates from his style of what he produced in the 80s and the 70s of that, that, that synth kind of field. So I think that is my exposure to John Carpenter is his sound 
before his movies. And then you watch the movies and you're like, oh, wow, this makes and like and, you know, you talk about the B things and we're going to get into it of how he structures and writes the movies that he did as we go through. Them. But I mean, this guy is just like, I had an idea. Let's film it. Mm. I feel I feel like that is every Carpenter film. I had an idea. Let's just shoot it. Well, what does this mean? It doesn't matter. Let's just shoot yeah. it. And it's going to be great. And it is. And also, like, the the run from Halloween up to, like, probably They Live. Like, yeah, that, that 80s the, run. That 10 years right there, yeah. I mean, put that up against really anybody. All of those movies, you know, no matter how successful they were, extremely enjoyable to watch. And most of them have endured. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we still, uh, obviously, we're talking about them now, but these are like now either completely rec- reclaimed cult classics or they've sort of always been in the culture. And that leads me into the question I had for you guys. Mm-hmm. Is he the king of cult classics? Is there someone else that has more considered under the quote of cult classics other than like wasn't appreciated when it got released and is now like in the echelon of you have to watch? I think he's got to be up there. And honestly, the moniker of quote unquote master of horror is kind of funny because yeah, he didn't just double down on the success of Halloween. He Mm -hmm. became much more of just a genre filmmaker. And so to be like the master of genre or the king of cult, almost like something grandpa genre, grandpa genre, (laughs) there needs to be, there needs to be some other title that Gigi put on him. Right. (laughs) Um, No, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, especially too on the level of, getting studio budgets because you can of course go back and you know, pick people like Gus Van Sant or somebody like that. Who've, who've stuck to strictly for the most part, strictly independent films and be like, they have all these cult classics, yada, yada, yada. But what Carpenter did, and especially with sticking with his crew and, and even the simpler movies usually have something going on under the surface, Mm. you know? And so to say that he's tackled serious subjects, isn't too far of a reach and yeah, I mean, I do think that for somebody to stay that true to himself and to do the things that he's passionate about and to kind of not care whether or not there's financial success or critical success behind it is impressive. And yeah, that usually results in a cult following. And and here we are celebrating. I mean, the thing's over 40 years old now. Yeah. Um, we're coming up as we work through this decade of the 2020s. So many of these moves that we're going to talk about today will hit 40 years um, so yeah, the, the endurance behind so many of his films is extremely impressive. My first exposure was Halloween as well. And the score is right there with it, you know, whether or not it was the VHS tape that was at my parents' house growing up, but it was also that, that iconic score because whether or not you're going into a Halloween shop or whatever it is around that time of year, or you're trick or treating and some cool neighbor has music playing on their porch, um, <laughs> you hear that those, those keys, you know, and, and it's synonymous with Michael Myers. It's synonymous with the movie. And then from there, I also think that my next closest exposure, and it's funny because once we get to this movie, I'll talk about kind of my true first experience with it. Um, my realist first experience, I should say, but the children of the corn versus village of the damned Mm -hmm. little kids were always confused in my mind. And I just think of those, like the bowl cut with the white hair and the little kids all dressed in gray. And for whatever reason, I always thought, and I always used to think that that was children of the corn. And that's something that you just see either like made fun of on the Simpsons growing up or whatever, just like this little cult of little kids moving around and stuff. And then I come to realize that like, that's all village of the damned. And it's not some sort of like Stephen King adaptation or Stephen King short story or anything like that. Yes, it's adapted from a short story, but like, 
for for how silly that movie gets at times super iconic characters those <laughs> little kids yeah. um and i feel like i was exposed to them very early on even though this past week was my first time really front to backing that entire movie so i think that those are right there and then yeah i mean what what this guy means to us now max is he your favorite director Oh man, is he, uh, is he a top three guy, a top five guy? So that's that's. I was thinking about that too. Like, is he personally? He he's probably in like the top ten for me. But if I'm looking at it objectively, like he's probably like top twenty five, maybe. I mean, honestly, he he, and, and it's weird because again, he does really enjoyable, like fun movies, but he's not. And I feel bad saying this, but he's not he's not on the level of some of the other contemporaries in his class, right? But he's just so good at what he does that he is really a technician at 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 making movies. Um the, it's interesting the cult idea here because like I was listening to a podcast today talking about John Carpenter, and they were talking about how like cult films really Cold films might be a thing of the past just because there's so much there's so much content and exposure to every single kind of film and like you can you can find anything and right like people think everything everywhere all at once is a cult film no 100 percent not yeah well you can't be a cult film until time has passed right. like right. it has to be like oh this didn't get the recognition it deserved and now it's like considered like pulp fiction like that's a cult classic because, uh, yeah, it got a great. Well, was it though? I mean, it, it, well, it, it got it was revered. Best, it, it was one best it original screenplay. It was it was revered, but then it dropped off, and then now, like it, it's like the underlying, like hmm. it's the cult following. I think it's like the disparaging of the term cult classic. Is it the cult following, or is it the fact that something? didn't get the recognition it deserved and then later on it does and so now it's a cult classic well, because I, I think there's two different versions of a cult film as well too right there's like the cult film that gets merchandise at hot topic and spencer's at the mall <laughs> and and things like that and then there's the eighth most popular film from a genre filmmaker that mm. no one maybe knows about except for the guy that works at your local video store and yeah. he's like you know what you should check out you should check out like ridley scott's robin hood or right. or or in my case like michael mann's miami vice you right. know like and even those are still big budget films mm -hmm. and and yeah to bring up somebody like gus van sant from earlier or, or larry clark somebody like that like those really edgy filmmakers who whose movies don't get a wide release or anything like that like then you have those kind of cult movies so i don't know it's such an interesting conversation mm. and then you have the conversation of like what do production companies like a24 come into play mm -hmm. where like they have huge hits and then they have ones that you've never heard of that are like oh wow like kind of like lamb lamb right. lamb is right. like widely revered but like not a lot of people have seen it is that a cult that's classic, a great like, call already. because i think in like 10 years that's 100 percent going to be a cult classic exactly yeah. so like the it's weird to think of like cult classics being that because of the exposure but then at the same time it's kind of like as my voice cracks right there <laughs> um it's at the same time it's like the you know it almost like kind of whittles it down like where it kind of keeps it more where like there's so much exposure but then there's ones that are gonna squeak through that barrier of exposure be like no this is still like 
upper echelon needs to be recognized and didn't get the, you know, a clay that it should have at mm. the time. And genre comes into play too, right? Because like, does a cult classic have to be from the sci-fi horror or, you know, like in just one of these edgy action films to be considered because like going back to uh, upside, the upside of anger, which I watched when I went to go log it on letterbox, 195 reviews. <laughs> That's nothing, nothing. So I'm like, <laughs> nobody knows about this. This yeah. is a cult film. Now it's a glorified rom-com, you yeah. know, like, Anything, I guess, could really be considered one. Well, now, like, it just, as we're talking about this, like, I feel like John Carpenter is the king of cult classics because there's a lot of action films, a lot of weird films he did that aren't highly recognized. So. Definitely. But I like what you're saying, though, Max, about where he kind of sits, because if you think about, we always like to equate things to sports, right? And so, like, I was thinking about Major League Baseball, for mm, instance, mm-hmm. something that's been around forever, about the same time as movies, you know, over 100 years. Uh, anybody nowadays could say like, I love the Yankees or I love the Dodgers. And it's a safe thing to say. Kind of like you mentioned Spielberg earlier. Anybody can say, I love Raiders. I love Jaws. Mm -hmm. I love E.T. All these things. And you're like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like I like movies too, bro. Like, yeah, yeah, I like the Yankees too. I like baseball or whatever. But then you meet somebody who's just like, and I want to shout out our buddy Drew right now, Drew Green, when he's just like, i fucking just live for the Cincinnati Reds. You know, that's kind of like if you have a guy like John Carpenter or yeah. somebody who's like, I ride for this guy, yeah. no matter what. That's how I kind of view it. You yeah. know, where it's like every professional sports team is good. They have good players on them. John Carpenter's a good, if not great filmmaker. And so there's no reason he's not a professional. To be like, and that's exactly he's a professional. Any baseball player that plays the game is a professional at that sport. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if they bat .092 or <laughs> 400, 500. It doesn't matter. Right. You're better than anyone else that could. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. The thing that gives Carpenter such an edge when we do get to talking legacy is the guy's multifaceted, right? We're also talking about maybe one of the – 20 best film composers, maybe one of the 15 best film composers of all time. And it's not even, it's not even the films that he's directed either because what he did in Halloween two, what he did in season of the witch and what Mm. he's continued to do working with his son, Cody for the um, David Gordon green remakes has been phenomenal work as well. And this is somebody who has, you know, he's hired out. We're going to get to, Morricone score on the thing. We're going to talk about all the different music that this guy's done and put into his movies. But the fact that he keeps pumping out albums, even though he's not making movies, he's the the Carpenter Lost Files. I was going to say the Lost Themes. Lost I was, Themes, that's what it is. I yeah. was listening on the way over here. Mm. Play Vortex and Obsidian at my funeral. Like <laughs> those, those tracks, like, and like the whole, like there's, and there's volume one, there's volume two. Mm-hmm. I think a volume three is on the horizon. Like, the guy like is he's just an artist. The guy just pumps shit out, whether it's music or movies, whether it's inspiring other people and just being a producer and just being on set. I mean, the guy is just he's fucking cool, man. He loves <laughs> basketball. He's a huge Warriors fan. Right. I know that. I think Plays he loves a lot video. Of video games. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Like, you can't get him away from his Xbox. It sounds like um, Xbox 360 too. Oh he like gosh. plays the old video games. What a lord. <laughs> The old video games? It's not the old ones. No. These days. No. Yeah. 360 is 
360 and PS3 are not old. Dude, think about it. 360 is probably someone's first video game system. Right, but listen, I'm sure yeah, Carpenter but, could still hold his own on like a Genesis or yeah. something like that. Uh, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like old like I'm not old yet, guys. <laughs> We're I'm not old, old yet. World. <laughs> um Okay, so let's begin this task of ranking all of his directorial efforts. And I love that you guys have word that use that word visionaries because visionary because that's what I have right now. He has such a deep, as most visionaries do, he has such a deep catalog of short films, music videos. He's done the anthology series. He's worked in television. Mm. So for the purpose of this discussion, we do want to just stick to the theatrical releases. Before we get going, though, let's take a second. And maybe recognize some of those other works, in, including his his you know efforts as a com- composer. Because we're not going to get to those, but we really want to try to cover the entire career here. I'll start because I watched his made-for-TV film "Someone's Watching Me," which mm. came out in 1978, same year as Halloween. And I'm not sure what network aired this, but my goodness, I cannot imagine getting <laughs> the family around the TV on a Friday or Saturday night. To watch this, it's like 140 minutes. So you imagine it was two hours with commercials. It's a it's a full-on movie, just happened to be released on TV. And it is so cool. It is so Hitchcockian. Really? It goes on to be what I can only imagine influential for somebody like De Palma when mm. making. And and you know, sisters had already come out, so I'm sure he drew influence from that. But a lot of body uh double influences in here, which of course goes back to Hitchcock. But wow, this movie is really fun. Yeah, it's really good. It's about a peeping Tom slash stalker that is following this woman around. Has moved from the Midwest to follow her out to Los Angeles. This woman becomes a uh, director at a news station and befriends Adrian Barbeau. And so they're like, you know, these two chicks, and she she meets a love interest as well. It's kind of the three of them. And they're trying to take this guy down. You know, just one of these kind of formulaic plots of it gets worse and worse. Breaking and entering happens. We're just messing with the light switches, crank calls. So, yes, it's it's reminiscent of something like Black Christmas. And then when a stranger when a stranger calls comes out the year later um, or a year later. But I mean, still, it's just so fun. It, it was a really fun watch. If if it was being included, it'd be probably right outside of my top 10 because he wrote and directed um, wrote and directed it. Had a lot of fun with this one. So it's kind a of the tricky. bones for Halloween too. Yeah, definitely the bones for for Halloween and um, his student film at USC prior to this, Captain Voyeur, mm. is really. I mean, like that's that's the Charmander. This film is Charmeleon and then Halloween in the shape becomes Charizard where like he, you can see the natural progression, the natural evolutionary stages um, of this kind of obsession with voyeurism and stalking. And this just like this, this shape, this presence that no one really sees someone that hides behind a mask. In this case, he's hiding behind a telescope the whole time. So I really, that's first gen Pokemon for the young people that are listening. Everyone knows Pokemon. Now, trust me. I'm having to confiscate cards all the time. It's cool. Um, and then also I want to shout out um, the Masters of Horror anthology series. It was out on Showtime back in the mid-2000s. He directed two of those. Um, I really am excited to dive into this series now. It was always 
around, especially around at the same time that I was really becoming fluent and, and, you know, kind of finding these auteur directors and going through their catalogs. Cause I know Argento has a few in there, a few other guys, Romero, I believe is on there. Um, but he directed two, one's called cigarette burns and it's about a guy who gets hired by this movie prop movie memorabilia cinephile, um, who just wants to collect all the rarest prints of different movies and things of that nature. He hires him to go find this like illicit copy of a film that was only screened once and it incited a ton of violence in the movie theater and people kind of went crazy. So it has a lot of like eight millimeter vibes Mm. to it, you know, where Nick Cage has Mm -hmm. to go and find the snuff film. Very similar. It's only an hour long, but it's a, it's a great meta text on obsession and just the nature of a cinephile and the nature of somebody who just wants to find out where the limits are in entertainment, basically like how far can you go to be entertained? How far will you go to be grossed out and kind of put off by things? And is that a healthy thing? Is that something to be proud of that you've seen everything that you know, everything. Um, so a really interesting commentary, I think on where the horror genre was in 2005. And since then, obviously with fandom of movies exploding, like it has over the last 15 years, something that I think has aged really well. So those yeah, are good. I watched uh, Body Bags, which again was a, I believe, a TV movie anthology series uh, that him and Toby Hooper put together. Um, but a lot of other directors show up. Sam Raimi, of course, shows up. Uh, Corman sh- shows up as as acting credits, which is really fun. Uh, he, I think, Carpenter does just the first in the anthology, but then he's also the host. It's like the crypt keeper, like the crypt. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just, uh, he's like, just like a, he's a morgue worker, um, who loves dead bodies and, you know, he's not going to win an Oscar for acting or anything, but he's a lot of fun. He does a lot of funny puns, uh, throughout as he hosts, uh, this, this anthology series, but the one that he, he wrote and directed the gas station <laughs> again, very simple, a woman who just gets hired to run the run the you know register at a gas station uh, on the graveyard shift finds out that one of the other workers uh, there is a serial killer who kills people who come come to get gas late at night um, and you're kind of like in one place you know it's all in one place in this gas station um, pretty fun movie uh, but again only like maybe like thirty six thirty eight minutes. Um, but, uh, I, all three of them were, were, were pretty silly and fun. It is fun though that he has, and like most people do, you know, we touched on it earlier. They have these different little pockets of their career that you can go. And if you want to crank out just a few short films or mm-hmm. a couple of anthology things before sitting down and actually watching like a 90 minute movie, you can, and it, you still get a pretty good taste of their style and mm-hmm. everything like that. Anything you want to shout out before we get going? Are you ready? I'm ready. You're ready. Let's all go. Right. So. To begin this, we need to start with 18 theatrical releases. We're going to rank them all. We will start at what we think is the weakest and then work our way up to the more quintessential titles. And any disagreements will be vetted as they come up. So we got to start at the bottom of the barrel. What do you guys have as number 18? Uh, Memoirs of of an Invisible Man. That's what I have as well. I don't know if either of you guys got to this one. No, but I like I literally just went off of IMDb of what I hadn't seen and yeah. this is definitely. Uh this is this is a a boring movie. It's got a lot of voiceover. Daryl Hannah is really bad in it. Chevy Chase, I you can tell that he's not having a good time 
and it, you're not having a good time watching him. I saw the poster and like screenshots, and I was like, "This isn't real. This has to be like a Reddit kind of like yeah." A uh, well, I think it's him trying to do a little bit of Universal Monster stuff with the Invisible Man, and then it's yeah. also, I mean, Hollow Man hadn't come out yet, and I right. think that probably takes the Invisible Man premise to a new level a new level a scarier level whereas this is more melodramatic more of a comedy than anything um and it's not particularly funny uh yeah i don't know i this uh, i was just i was blown away because you can also tell with john carpenter like when he like believes in what he's shooting like you can tell there's an effort there uh, and this definitely, I, I believe, is Lacks the low, lowest effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was in between what he wanted to do and was just kind of let me get the paycheck yeah. so I can. So I well, can and I think it's also when Chevy Chase started to really alienate people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the, those early '90s, that's mm-hmm. kind of when he started to turn. I believe yeah. his reputation started to precede him yeah. for sure. Okay, so we're cool with that at 18. Moving on to 17, then what do you have next? So some of these bottom bottom movies, I feel like I didn't get to. I've oh, I, I I didn't get to watch Ghost of Mars, but I've always heard that that's lower on his on his. Some people on. ride for it though. Let me yeah, tell you, yeah. and I can see why. I don't have it quite this low. This is where I have Starman. Mm. What's next for you, Grant? I had. Um... The same Ghost of Mars, just because I heard the same thing. Yeah, of, I didn't like, get to watch it, so I I, I I did watch Starman. Starman again, like not a John Carpenter like typical film. Very much a, a like Disney feeling. You're trying to do like the nice alien ET thing, um, which I, is why I think it should go down here than yeah, in the seventeenth. Yeah, not a lot of horror, not a lot of thrills. Much more of a romantic movie, but also I think a direct um, and this reaction. Is like a soft PG. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be his only PG, or well, no, that that's not true because ratings were different back then. But uh, I, I feel like it is definitely a reaction to maybe what how how the thing was not accepted when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he just decided, okay, well, I'll make an ET. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Jeff Bridges is doing some weird stuff in it. Karen Allen is is always kind of fun to see. Um, Sam Neill is also in this as the antagonist, or no, he's in he's in the Invisible Man movie. Never mind, I don't know who the antagonist. Yeah, you're right. So Seventeen should probably be Starman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I, we can and we can talk about Ghost of Mars now because that's where I have this slotted in the 16 spot ghost of Mars is so interesting because it came out at a time when American filmmakers seemed obsessed with trying to copy what Paul Verhoeven did with starship troopers, taking us off planet, typically to Mars because you had red planet mission to Mars. And then ghost of Mars all come out within like an 18 month period (laughs) of each other. I don't think any of them worked and they all had such a odd look to them. Mm, Yeah. I explained it. I was telling you max off mic where it, this movie ghost of Mars feels like one of those old, not even like Roger Corman movies, but one of those old like monster movies, not even Godzilla though. Like 
the lost world yeah where it is so clearly a landscaped backdrop and then yes you have some props not in not in the foreground but in that middle ground between your actors and so there's like some pretty impressive set work done on this movie but then the the outer space setting and portrayal on screen just makes it feel so weird anytime you're out and about a extremely bizarre cast here of Pam Greer, Jason Statham, um, Natasha Henstridge from Species, hot off a of Species, so I can see why they did that casting. Just doesn't really work. Is an Ice Cube Ice, in cu- this? ice Cube's yeah. like the main guy <laughs> who they go to rescue. That's the reason why they're on this mission, to go pick him up from like a, a prison colony, basically. He's been transferred. It's just so weird. The story is told in the most backwards way possible, where it's a flashback from like this debriefing that Natasha is doing. And yet within her flashbacks, other characters have their own flashbacks. It just becomes so muddled. It's so weird. I can see why people like it because it is certainly an awesomely bad movie, but in the Carpenter scheme of things, I think it's just a bad movie. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I wanted to say about this is there is someone in this movie that will be on this show in a couple weeks. Oh, so just leaving that as a little Easter egg for the mm-hmm. ETI listeners out there that someone in Ghost of Mars. Might not be the only Ghost of Mars reference this winter. <laughs> yeah. Someone's coming on. Very interesting. Okay, so then next we're at the 15 spot. I, again, okay, so the other movies I didn't Grant, see. Let's, let's have Grant. I, I'm, I'm going off of ratings, and I'm also going off of the ones I didn't get to, but mm-hmm. the ones I did a little research on. The one I have at 15 is The Ward, which is his most recent. His last picture. His last yeah. picture. I have Dark Star. This is where I have Dark Star as at well. At 15. Okay. And see, and that's another one that like Dark Star seemed a little bit more like so Dark Star more Carpenter than this. So I I think it is, and I think it probably has more prestige just because it was his first feature film, mm-hmm. and it was tongue in cheek. He's making fun of a lot of the stuff that he would later go on to. I think actually care a lot about, but this is sort of like a riff on the space crew and being out with a computer and AI technology, all this other stuff that, you know, I'm not saying that this is like a scary movie take, mm-hmm. um, a, not another team, not, a, not another space movie. Um, but I think that this is very tongue in cheek and very, very comedic on purpose, but it's also fantastical. It has fantasy elements to it. However, I just, you know, it gets credit for being his first, but I don't think like if an alien came to space and I wanted to show them what a John Carpenter movie was about, that I would start with this movie. Yeah. And I wouldn't start with three of these others. So it's not the worst, but I also still think it's kind of in that first quarter. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with dark star being here. Yeah. 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 Next. I have the ward at 14. So I have, I have the ward at 13 and I have vampires next. Okay. So we can talk about this because I actually think that vampires has the potential had the potential to be great. I think vampires is actually kind of oddly awesome. Like I, th- I totally agree with yeah. you. I totally agree with you. It also though has that really weird thing going for it where you just know it's so bad because we have like 
the fifth most famous Baldwin brother <laughs> in this movie. Uh, you know, Cheryl Lee, who, if you're a Twin Peaks fan, you'll Dude, love her. But Yeah, when I was watching, I was like, oh my god, Alex's girl. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Is that Cheryl Lee? That's Twin Peaks. But also, you know James Woods is just the biggest asshole in real life. Totally. And, he, and, and such a dick in this movie, but I get it. There, There is this... If he would have had Kurt Russell come and play this character... This movie would have, have been fucking awesome. Yeah, we have a hit you on our Kurt hands. Russell, and, and maybe you put Keith David in as as the Baldwin character. Mm. It is weird that he's, and it, it comes what? It comes at 98 and 98, and like this is after Escape from L.A., which was a huge flop. So I'm sure that's like all he could maybe muster at that time. And I don't know where James Jim. Woods probably, he probably Yeah, I don't know it. where Jimmy Woods is in his career in 98. Um, but yeah, man, I, 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 but I did love, like, this would be a great, vampires would be a great double feature with like, with near dark. Mm -hmm. Like it it is the Western take on, on a vampire story. It is. And I appreciate, I appreciate the religious conspiracy side mm, of it. mm -hmm. Okay. You're kind of talking me into it because (laughs) the word, the word really doesn't have, the word's just very straightforward and Mm. the word is. I mean, it has a little bit of a twist at the end, but it's also kind of telegraphed. You can see what's coming. But I do think that for as much as people have dumped on the word in the past, when I went back and revisited it, I actually enjoyed the simplicity of it and the fact that even though he's not working with his crew, he's not working with any familiar actors, he still did just kind of go for it in a time when so many horror movies that were being made were soft PG 13s. Mm-hmm. Cause this comes out, the ward does in 2010. So there's all, we're in the midst of all the horror remakes that have happened from like 2005 to 2003, really 2000, you know, for a decade, basically there from twelve, you know, Oh two to 12 or whatever. And so this comes out at the tail end of that. People are trying to come up with original ideas like the, the uninvited, which is a remake, but then also the unborn. So many of these movies with just the word the, and then something else. And so the ward in this case, and yeah, you know, obviously our mileage varies greatly on Amber Heard and what kind of person she is, but we're trying to separate art from the artist here. <laughs> and I enjoyed the violence in this movie. It's another 80 minute banger right. that you can just kind of like slip in and slip out of. I thought that the mental health commentary would have held up a lot worse than it actually did. So I gave it some kind of extra bonus points for that. I guess at the end of the day, which one of these would I probably rewatch again next? It'd be vampires. And, and well, and it, it feels more, I mean, again, I, I dink it to the ward. The ward could not feel less like a John Carpenter movie. Right. And mm, if we're, yeah. I mean, that's if, why I had it so low is that's a lot of the reasons. I'm guessing, and... I'm guessing you have village, village of the damned at 12. Do you have that at 12 Correct. or 11? Correct. Yeah. So yeah, if, if we put ward at 14, I'm okay with vampires going in at 13 Mm -hmm. and then give us some, some village of the damned. So with village of the damned comes this confusion that I touched on earlier from my childhood where children of the corn village of the damned, two separate things. I now know this (laughs) to be a fact. Um, had a great time with village of the damned though. The consensus seems to be that the first 40 minutes are super eerie. This is after reading a bunch of letterbox reviews, super eerie, really good atmospheric build to what still kind of works as a horror movie. Some people think it really falls off a cliff. 
Doesn't uh, Mark isn't Mark Hamill like a priest who snipes the, some kids? Mark Hamill is a priest who at one point feels like he needs to take matters into his own hands <laughs> and puts the leader of these damned children in the middle of his crosshairs. And then the rest of the gang runs, you know, they pull up on him and pretty soon the barrel of this gun's in his mouth and Mark Hamill meets his demise. Oof. But it's it's good stuff, honestly, even after the children. And it's kind of funny that that's how it would play out. But it really is after the children arrive and mature into these you know, they're they are like fully functioning adults just kind of in children's mm-hmm. bodies and they have these superpowers of telekinesis and they can read minds and all these other things but um no for the most part i found this movie very enjoyable once again you're out in 93 minutes or whatever it is by the time you know the credits start you get five minutes of credits and you know the runtime might you think ah, i don't have an hour and 40 minutes for this but trust me you got an hour 30 minutes <laughs> for this it's very doable christopher reeves is Pretty charming as the doctor of mm. this small sleepy town. It's got Superman and Luke Skywalker in it, Grant. Yeah, man. You got to watch this one. It's pretty fun. And Christy That's Alley. Why I have it high on the list, even <laughs> though I haven't seen it, and but Chris, I have it high on Christy the list. Christy Alley, RIP. She's doing some pretty fun stuff in this movie as well. This is one of those John Carpenter films that, like, I saw a bunch of clips on That's TV. What I'm you see like, clips I, I saw clips of Christy Alley and Christopher Reeves. I saw these. The, these things that you're talking about, these kids and mm-hmm. stuff, but never really put it together. For for those who don't know or maybe had the same confusion as I did with Children of the Corn, what happens in Village of the Damned is a small, sleepy coastal town in Northern California experiences a four-hour blackout where everyone in the town passes out, and then after they've been, you know, after they just come to their senses, basically after they are, are awake again, Life sort of goes back to normal, but obviously the government is in. They're running all these tests. Everything seems fine, though, until a few weeks later, and all the women are now pregnant in the town, and it's traced back to this blackout. And so there's all of this hysteria. No one knows what what to do, what they should do. Christy Alley is this doctor from the federal government who comes in and basically incentivizes the women to keep the children so that they can be studied and after a kind of freaky dream sequence, most of the women decide that they should keep the children. Once the kids come to term and start growing up, clearly you realize that this is a terrible thing and they have these powers and they have this drive to basically end humanity and that this has happened in other regions all around the world. It's fun stuff. It feels a little Stephen King esque, which is probably why there's the confusion of children of the corn and it's just kids, you know. Right. But um, no, I mean, I think it's underrated in the Carpenter scheme of things. It has enough Carpenter vibes to it. A few of the reoccurring actors that you've seen in some of his other things, like Deep on the Bench, show up. I, I really enjoyed this movie. I gave it, which is kind of a soft rating for me, the three and a half on Letterboxd, but I slapped the love sticker on there mm. as well because. You know, in a run of movies, I finished this one like mid-afternoon on Sunday and just had a really good time with it. It was kind of a breath of fresh air. So even though 12 is kind of low, I understand putting it right here just because this top half starts to get really heavy. Yeah. The top 10 is going to be going to be tough to decipher. It's a crapshoot. (laughs) So where did you have Village placed then, Grant? Um, Right where you guys did. Like right where we're putting it. So we're putting it at 12. All right. So then what's 11 for you, Max? Uh, Escape from L.A. And I might like Escape from L.A. 
better than the my tenth movie on the list, uh, which is Assault on Precinct Thirteen. But Escape from L.A. is intentionally a bad movie. Um, you know, it's an awesomely bad movie. So I, I have it here because again, I think it, it it it's so ahead of its time where John Carpenter is like, oh, you want a sequel to one of my most beloved movies from the 70s? You want a sequel 20 years later? Well, fuck you. I'm going to make just a, a well, New York, terrible... New York was, yeah, New York was yeah. super early 80s, yeah. but still. 10, 10 years, whatever. 15 years. Um, it's a legacy yeah, yeah, vibe. Yeah, 15 years later. And, and, but it like takes place like literally like eight months after Escape from New York. Um, which is really funny because Kurt Russell does not look the same. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it's awesomely bad. It, it is awesomely bad. And there are some some terrible, terrible sequences in it as far as, like, you know, effects go. Uh, and, like, Pam Greer shows up, but she's dubbed over by a man. Um, just some wild, wild stuff. But really, really fun. Uh, and I have it in this 11th spot. I think this is... Right. Yeah. It's riffing on sequels while also being a sequel. And I think once again, this was, this is Carpenter's being like, yes, I do like money. Yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> totally. make, I'll make this movie. Totally. Yeah. I had this above. Uh, I had him swapped with what you have with Assault, Assault and Precinct. Like I had Assault below mm-hmm. this only because this is a, I feel like this is a more Carpenter film than mm-hmm. Assault and Precinct 13. I think Assault and Precinct 13, he was trying to just, make a film and have his own touch on it, but have it be a little bit more universally accepted. Well, even. assault is definitely more revered. I've definitely right. Assault's really gritty. Yeah. Yeah. Assault needs to be in the top 10. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Where then I look at escape from LA of being like a sequel to a film that I think should be in the top 10. Mm. Um, but then you look at the, you look at the cast list and the stuff that he's done, the people that he brought back and the people that he keeps partnering up with. And we always talk about this, that we love directors that keep continuing to partner with actors and bringing them into roles and this, that, and the other. Um, so I had these just swap, but I have them in the kind of the, the same one, two punch. So I'm fine with escape from LA being in this lower. So we'll put escape from LA at 11 the next film on my list <laughs> cracking the top 10 would be they live i also and i know that it, i know that it won't go there but i'm just letting you know what my list is um i think then in in my order though the next three in some order should probably go they live big trouble in little china and then assault on precinct 13 so i have assault on precinct 13 at 10 i have they live at nine and I have in the mouth of madness at eight. The reason why we're being a little because <laughs> we know how right much now. you love this we movie. Know Grant loves this movie. Loves they and, live. And, and However, listen, they live can can be up higher if you know. I, I, they, go to bat. They they live is one of those movies where go to bat. Go to step bat. up. Step up to the plate. Sir. <laughs> they live is one of those movies to where like it's. I feel like it's John Carpenter just wanting to be himself. Like I feel like he just I've. I feel like he had no reins on this and they were just like, make a movie. And he was like, okay, I'm going I'm to do this. And cause this movie like has so many different like trajectories and then 
drastically shifts and keeps you on your toes. And then like you move to a different focal point and you move to a different focal point. And Roddy, the Rod Piper is just, I mean, I love, I fell in love with this guy as the maniac on it's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> and then, you know, knowing he's a WWE, you know, F wrestler at the time. And then doing these kind of movies, like it fits perfectly. Like that's Alex, I read your letterboxd review and it like the things that you said of like, you're like, ah, I don't like this for the reasons that the people are like you hit it nail on the head. Like this is just kind of more of one of Carpenter's over the top, goofy, not, not goofy, but kind of like satirical. Like more- my question is, I wonder if Carpenter himself felt like if he made this movie straight up, and talked about like the deeper issues right at play here would it get as much attention and as much play whereas if he makes it kind of this black comedy satirical comedy are people going to be more understanding and sort of forgiving to it because this is like in the wake of the reagan 80s mm-hmm. and i think that honestly this and assault on precinct 13 are his two most political movies and so i do love when a director who we have kind of heralded as being like he just wants to make his movies carpenter obviously has a sense of what's going on in the world because with this movie he's talking all about consumerism and you know just uh, obeying the government and everything else like that and then in assault on precinct 13 it's this whole meta commentary on the police forces and you know, the, the FBI and everyone else who's been fucking up shit in the seventies, basically post Vietnam, post Watergate and post dismantling of the black Panthers and everything else that was going on in there. So like, he knows what he's doing by making these two movies in the ways that he made them. So I do give him a ton of credit for that. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that what they live does. It's more of the social commentary and like what it, is meant and what it the the story is and the message is that kind of like elevates that that film you know the glasses the consumerism the the infiltration the subliminal messaging this that and the other and then you're right there is what the black comedy of it all the the extensive fight scene that is just hysterically amazing between him and keith david it's like eight minutes long it's it, I, <laughs> it's I, so I, believe, long. I believe it's 747 was like the clip that i like watch wow. and i and i think it shaved off a couple like <laughs> yeah. a, a little bit of it all but like it is it's so amazing because it, it's so 80s and it's so carpenter but then it also like has this cultness to it you know the the glasses the the alien um rendition skeletons yeah you'll yeah. see obey. that yeah you'll yeah. you'll see the obey the you'll see the consuming line yeah you'll see the the alien like face like as a t-shirt as a spray paint as a graffiti like you'll see that kind of like stem up a lot in other pop culture and like I think this is one of the movies that it often gets overlooked in the Carpenter's films because it is kind of like a little bit of goof. goof. There's there's some goofiness in, in this age. Looking back on it, watching this film, you're like, okay, man, like what are we doing? Like what are we doing here? This is an overdrawn '80s film, but the social commentary has the things that it resonates to the cult classic. If we're gonna say he's the king of cult, this is a reason why. When I was watching it this last week, I couldn't help but think about David Cronenberg's Videodrome and how Dr. Oblivion in that movie comes on. You know, you find these pirated cable access channels that are trying to, in 
Videodrome, they refer to it as like opening the mind's eye and letting people know what's really going on out there in the world. And I just think that that movie was done so straight up and leaned into it without trying to be goofy or satirical. And so I, I just can't help but think that like, I guess if he did it straight up, then it would probably be because you don't really hear about they live in video drum being compared too much. But if but that I think is because of all the fun you can have with they live and like mm-hmm. nobody besides I don't know whack job like myself has fun with video drum, <laughs> but like video drums such a straight up and like kind of intense movie that I think that they live had to be this way. Big Trouble in Little China's the other one that we haven't mentioned now that might kind of float right around this yeah. nine ten area. So let's talk about that one, and then we can really try to figure out where these are all going to land. We so, haven't really talked about Assault yet either. So yeah, well, Big Trouble in Little China was a film that I watched when I was a freshman in high school, and unfortunately, it was number one on my list to rewatch, and I did not get a chance to. So it's still very vague in my mind, but I do remember it being the edge of what john carpenter does of but the fantasy edge rather than the realism the groundedness that he likes to do some stuff this one was like let's combine both because he has films where it's full fantasy and then films that's full groundedness and then this one is like what happens if we do both and it's just fireworks is the only thing i mean you look at the poster you look at the trailer it's just colorful fireworks and Mm -hmm. it's a very unique John Carpenter, which is why I had a little bit higher up. So I had Assault, then uh, what we were just talking about, which I'm... They Live? They Live, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, They Live at nine? nine? They Live at nine, and then Big Trouble at eight. Okay. Okay. So the thing with Big Trouble... We'll cut that. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I feel like Big Trouble is doing is that is him kind of trying to be George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for a minute... And create this just like happy go lucky time at the movie theaters with still his boy Kurt Russell, of course. And it's fun because John Carpenter really has two different trilogies in his back pocket. He has the Apocalypse trilogy, and we haven't gotten to any of those films yet, so we'll save those. But then he has this Kurt Russell trilogy of Escape from LA, Escape from New York, and Big Trouble in Little China. And, you know, Kurt's kind of a different guy in each of those movies. Obviously, Snake. 15 years later and escape is kind of a parody of himself, but snake Pilskin, and we'll get to him, you know, it's just iconic anti-hero stuff, but everyone's kind of having the most fun in big trouble in little China. I, I think it's definitely his most fun film. Mm-hmm. I, and I, it's interesting because they, they live and big trouble. I think you can, you can really compare a lot. They're, they're kind of trying to do some of the same things as far as like fun and almost sci-fi fantasy stuff. But I think Big Trouble is definitely the the more successful at that, and and that's probably because you have Kurt Russell in the role. Again, if Kurt Russell is in They Live, that's probably a better movie. I will I will say not in the current terms of things, but in the eighty terms of things, Big Trouble is more comic booky. Oh, it's more yeah. it's, it's totally. more pulpy. It's more it's more extravagant. So many of those scenes feel like comic book panels. Ab- absolutely, and I think that's why it kind of elevates a little bit more. But you're right, yeah, like sure, like Roddy the Rod Piper, rest in peace. The guy was fantastic. Love him as the maniac. Love him as this guy. He delivers one of my greatest favorite lines of all time. Came here to kick ass and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> and then he just cocks a shotgun and starts blowing people away. <laughs> well, it's not even that either. It's like he's he's his eyes have been opened yeah. for literally 
a minute to everything that's happening in the world around him. And his first instinct is just like, let's go into the bank and kill a bunch of yuppies, <laughs> alien yuppies. Well, and, and I think that's such a great, like a guy that is, that we have seen a long drawn out setup of being a drifter, life not in his control, just such a long setup. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's so long. It is. It is very, very long. And like going into and these depressing, I'm like, fuck man, I'm gonna give this guy a job. Pop, pop it up into these like, like homeless, camp, encampments. homeless encampments. Yeah. And the people are like, Oh, you need to go here for a job. You need to go here for you a got job. Tools in those backpacks. Yeah. He's, he's just trying to find his way. And then like, this is the first time where he's like, Oh, none of that mattered. And I have control. Now. I have mm. purpose seeing that. And like, yes, it is a little bit over the top. It's a little bit comical, but it's iconic and it's been cemented in film, which is why I have it in the top 10. So we haven't talked about assault yet. Assault on precinct 13. I feel like it's, <sighs> it's not quite as exciting as something like the warriors. But for me, I think that it's right there in this like really gritty 1970s action thriller that when you say they don't make them like this anymore, I know they tried to redo this movie, Mm -hmm. but you just don't make them like this anymore where there's a a one setting location where you can just have fun on the surface, but then you can look below and you can try to figure out the social commentary. I put in my letterbox review because there's the one line that the woman says, um, of like, why would anyone shoot up a police department or station or whatever? And in the wake of those things that I mentioned earlier, Watergate and the dismantling of the Black Panthers and everything else, Vietnam, it's like Carpenter knows why someone would want to rebel against law enforcement and against government agencies. And then to think about the last like three years that we've lived in where here in, in the Seattle area, we had people literally attacking police mm-hmm. precincts up in CHOP we saw it happen down in Atlanta. We've seen it happen in Minneapolis. And so the fact that like the things that are going on in Assault on Precinct 13, which was two years before Halloween, feel so polished and resonant still now, I feel like is a huge accomplishment. And I love – and John Carpenter, we're going to get to this, especially once we get into some of his bigger movies, the ensemble casts that he's able to put together without giving you almost any exposition on these people's lives. Whereas it's usually not, there's one or two people at the top of the batting order that you have a relationship with, like the Kurt Russell's of the world, or maybe the Jamie Lee Curtis's Donald Pleasant's people like this that keep popping back up, Adrian Barbo. But then for the most part, everyone else, you don't get their backstory. It doesn't matter if you become attached to them or not. In this case on assault, the gang of what are they called? The street street, dreamers or something i forget what they're called um but it's like i would love to know more about this gang's leadership like this is a we're in like the slums of los angeles and this is an interracial multicultural gang of like black guys mexican guys white guys and you don't know why their crew is trying to raid the police station in the first place and then you see these people taking this blood oath and how serious they take it all at the beginning and then they're just ready to ride and that's it. And then we just we don't spend any more time with them. The camera doesn't cut back. And so we're not getting this like good versus evil. We're just left to make up our own minds basically on like, are we gonna root for this rookie cop and a bunch of criminals? Or are we gonna root for the street gang who's like trying to get revenge and we don't even know why their homies died in the first place? It's just such an interesting take on kind of good versus evil in this movie. And then yeah, there's the simplicity of filming it in one location. 
and having it mean so much more than I think maybe Carpenter even knew at the time. And also these influences from like, I've heard people say that this is like his real Bravo. So like another Hawks inspiration. I was getting big on this rewatch. I was getting big Dawn of the Dead um, vibes from this. It's very Romero esque the way that the street gang just kind of like descends upon this one location and they're fighting them off. And they're basically just like this horde of shadowy figures coming through windows, coming through doors. And they're just kind of dropping like flies bullets everywhere in this movie. Really exciting. And so I really enjoyed my rewatch of Assault on Precinct 13. I think Big Trouble in Little China is what it is. And then They Live is probably taking the biggest swing out mm-hmm. of these three movies. And so I really appreciate it for that. And I'm just not sure where it lands for me individually because I think that there's so much more. And when I think about something like Videodrome, I know what that more looks like. So it's really hard for me to t- try to like distinguish the two. My big thing on Assault on Precinct 13, because I agree with everything you said about it, but it's also a year after Dog Day Afternoon. And if I'm going to pick between mm. those two yeah. movies, I'm going to watch Dog Day Afternoon. So I had that a little bit lower. Be- Fair. For, for, I think there's quite a few differences in those two movies. There, so like, there it's are, not a hostage movie. This there, is not it's a not a hostage, hostage movie, movie, but it is kind of like that. The, it's a commentary on the police force of America for ex- sure. Exactly. And yeah. that's and that's what I'm and that's the comparison that I'm making. So when I'm looking at assault on precinct thing precinct thirteen, I'm also thinking like, well, this isn't quite a carpenter film. Right, right. It, it is it is of this like that's top why, ten that we're getting most into. Grounded, right? Yeah. Oh, but, but because though. of the reveredness of it, that's why I had it where I did and in comparison to these other two that we're talking about. Do you have any strong feelings, Max? Which way we go here? So I had big trouble, with little China at six. Okay. Um, and again, I, I think the fun factor is yeah. bigger. I think the rewatchability of of Big Trouble is better. However, I expected Big Trouble to be in like my top three, and rewatching it this time, I was like, ah, it's good '80s schlock, but like, it's not. It's it's not it's it doesn't deserve to be in the top five. So I'm okay with 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 moving it further back from six to maybe the eighth spot, and then they live assault pre- on on precinct thirteen. That that can swap either way for me. I know the next movie that we're going to have to talk about. And I don't want to bring a fourth one into this conversation <laughs> quite yet. I feel like we need to get these three placed. I'm willing to go assault on precinct 13 at 10 because okay. I'm going to, I'm really obviously going to push for another film to crack the top five here in a little bit. Um, so, so we go with assault at 10 because I think that yeah. ultimately grant your point is that rings truest that it's really not what you would think of as a carpenter genre. Yeah. It's, body horror, sci-fi. Yeah. High, highly revered. Like John Carpenter has his name on it. It's not. It's, a, it's not quite a carpenter. I. It's not something you think of when you're like, "Hey, what's your favorite John Carpenter film?" If someone said Assault on Precinct Thirteen, you'd be like, "When the fuck were you born?" <laughs> or just like, "What do what do his other movies mean to you?" Then? Exa- exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, no, because it's, if you're it's just such a fan a, of action movies like The Warriors or like something else like that, I think you would love this movie. But if you are more of a genre fan who wants absolutely. to see, yeah. Some practical effects, yeah. some terror. I, I just think Escape from New York is more more like the Warriors and more successful. Yeah. Compared on to a bigger assault. on a 
bigger world building stage yeah. for sure. Okay, so Assault's going at 10. And number nine, is that where we put They Live or is that where we put Big Trouble? I had They Live there. You had They Live at nine? Oh, that's right. I have, I have late They Live up higher. Up higher. But, but I understand that the, what we're talking about, what we're trying to cement for John Carpenter and, and the, the, the realness of where that film should land in this. And I'm fine with it being lower down. I enjoy They Live over Big Trouble mm. when it comes to more if we're if we're talking what's the most carpenter film mm-hmm. that should be above big trouble if we're talking about what is the best films of john carpenter's filmography yeah you would reverse that you know so it kind of depends on what we're feeling and i'm the fact so that both what, of them are in cra- your nine spot my nine my nine spot is big trouble big okay trouble. So that's where I had that, but I'm I'm fine with things like moving around. I mean, it's my nine spot as well. Okay, big trouble. Let's let's put and it then in the they nine live spot. goes at eight because I I I did mine not on the movies that I liked, but like what are John Carpenter like? What should be like when you think of John Carpenter? Bing bing bam bam boom boom. And it was kind of the top seven that I really started being like, okay, now I can start shifting my favorites and stuff. But yeah, these ones I feel like. Should crack the top ten. I feel like we're gonna get shit for Big Trouble being so low. Well, but the, we're not set in stone yet. We're, we're gonna we we're gonna look we at the, we're yeah. gonna look at this ranking, and then we're gonna be like, okay, where should we switch things? And I think I think seven's pretty easy here. Seven, I think, goes in the mouth of madness. That's yeah. That's that's where it, it's sitting for me right now. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it was my number seven on my list. I think that the fact that it's fallen here. It's a good placeholder for now, right. at least. This is, let's see, is this the first that we've talked about? Yeah, this is the first in the Apocalypse, Apocalypse. trilogy um, that we're mentioning here. Sam Neill, incredible role as <laughs> an attorney for an insurance company that, um, you know, he investigates claims, tries to find fraud. A, a Stephen King-esque writer who is named Sutter Kane has written a book that is, and how funny is it, right? You can only make this in the 90s when somebody like Stephen King was so big because to have an author be like the center of pop culture <laughs> is, is hilarious now. Just, you know, kids these days will never understand. <laughs> but basically what happens is he goes into this Lovecraftian alternative world, this alternative reality basically that Sutter Kane has created in his most recent book and begins to experience all sorts of wild hallucinations. This movie's a lot of fun, incredible body horror and incredible effects in this movie with also having some genuinely frightening sequences. There's one where he's entering this town and this very pale faced man rides back and forth in front of his like uh, line of sight while he's driving on a bike. Like Sam Neill's driving. This guy goes by on a bicycle a couple of times really spooky stuff. Like if you're watching this late at night and you're already a bit unsettled, even though this movie isn't actually that scary, this is one of those scenes that can really get you. It's a very disorienting movie. It's very disorienting. Uh, the music is so rock and roll. It's yeah. So this is maybe Carpenter's most experimental that he gets with the music, because this is like a rock soundtrack, a rock score to this movie. Yeah. I'm okay with it at seven. Yeah. Where did you have in the mouth of madness? Grant? Right there at seven. Yeah. That one, that one's pretty well placed. I feel like, okay. So six now, I wish I could have this movie higher. Same. I, I think it's the same movie because revisiting this movie, I was 
I was blown away by I was it. smiling ear to ear. We're talking about Christine. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Christine. Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you have it? I had, I, I, I think we may have maybe the one, two little punch here. I just had them based off of kind of like the lore of them and like what I know of them, but I had the fog and then Christine of like the two kind of Stephen King, John Carpenter realm of things. Mm. But Christine being at this realm, like I said, like it's, like I said before, it's iconic. I remember more of this on random flipping through the channels Mm. of people being haunted by this car than a lot of other movies I would flip around from between sci-fi, TBS, and TV. This is one of those movies. That's where I watched it a ton growing up, but only bits and pieces, really. Yeah, only bits and pieces. But it was one of those movies where it wasn't like, it wasn't like Halloween where you would only see it on like maybe one cable show and then sci-fi would show it. Mm -hmm. But like Christine was one where it was on, I remember TNT, TBS, sci-fi, Comedy Central. Like for some reason, a lot of stations would show this movie. One of the best Stephen King adaptations. Absolutely. Upper echelon adaptation. And now this is coming from someone who hasn't read the book, but I can imagine just as far as like pure entertainment factor goes and thinking that they probably got this right, it has to be up there. Just what a fun, and I think the reason why it was on TV so much is that it's just such a fun movie that is also effective in its message and does so without, I mean, this does not have, aside from the car and it's a lot of visual effects go into the car, like fixing itself and things like that or whatever. But I also feel like maybe a lot of that is, Images shot in reversed and then put forward and, and things of that nature. But this movie is really easy to edit down. There really isn't gore in a lot of the kills. No sex. Some, a, a lot of there's a lot of talk of sex and actually some like pretty bad dialogue at the beginning of this mm-hmm. movie, especially that hasn't aged well. But aside from just like some language, it's a quick and easy edit for TV, which I think plays into the, the reason why we saw it so much growing up. But when you watch this front to back, it rips. Everything that shot at night is so beautiful. The car just looks great. That red up against a black backdrop yeah. of night. Um, you know, the transformation of and the lighting in this film. Yeah. Like the the use of the headlights are are just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. What what's our main character's name in this? Uh he's played by what Stuart Gordon, right? And, and uh, not Stuart Go- Gordon. Or, no, um, uh, but not, oh my god, Ar- his name's like Archie or something like that. Like we'll have to look it up here in a second. But when he first realizes that the car is sentient, Arnie. Arnie, Arnie. thank you. Keith Gordon. Keith, Keith Gordon. Gordon. And when he goes in front of Christine and says, Show me. Yeah. And those lights come on and the scents just go off a little bit. Mm. And then the car that's starts your that's your one itself. perfect frame shot right there yeah. where you're just like screen print, put it on a canvas. Great triple feature. Terminator Christine Cars. <laughs> Titan, can I fit Titan in there? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think all of those everyone fucks a car in all of those movies right there. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I was just saying, like, AI takes over a car, kills people. Cars are the last thing on, yep. on the earth. That's where I was going with that. I think Archie definitely banged his car. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Is that his name? Did I get that right? Arnie. Met- Arnie. 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 Yeah, yeah. Archie. <laughs> he feels like an Archie. Um, but wow, yeah. And and once again, too, the cast in this this film goes deep without giving you much backdrop. I mean, we're in high school. You would think that 
we have to understand. So like there would be some teacher that's up his ass the whole time or whatever. And it, it stays away from a lot of those eighties high school tropes mm. so that you would never, ever think to lump this into like, and not that this would be a bad thing, but it's just a different film than something like a John Hughes project, right. you know, but it's, it's right in that same window of time. Um, what's his buddies? I, I should have the cast list up here in front of me, but um, Dennis, right. That's his best mm-hmm. friend's name. Mm-hmm. John Stockwell, who goes on to direct <laughs> Into the Blue, Blue Crush, and Turistas. Like an unsung hero <laughs> of this podcast for me. And I just can't help but imagine that he was just gleaming info left and right, right. off a of carpenter. In also, this. Cougar and Top Gun. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This guy's like, oh, I love this guy. In Blue Crush, Into the Blue. I'm going to say, yeah, Turistas, <laughs> cra- right now, Crazy man. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I love Christine. It's Christine was so fun. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Again, like also such a commentary on like greaser culture and like everything else that I think people thought was so cool from like, like if you thought that like being a car guy was cool in the 50s, (laughs) 60s, 70s, and this comes out in the eighties and it's just like, yo man, that obsession's not healthy. (laughs) So Christine at six. I think Christine's at six. Okay. Here we are in the top five. So the top five. Mm. This gets really hard. This is splitting hairs. I, honestly, it really is. I, I feel like all five of these movies are are so here's uh, some of the best eighty movies of all time and the best carpenter movies well, of all. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I like my... I like that all our top fives are in the top five. That's true. Yeah. 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 Um. Well, except me, for my, my my five and six, I already said I would flop in so much. Me but. personally, I have one of my like it's just outside of the top twenty all time films for me in here. We know that at least one of Max's, we know Mac, that Max's all time favorite film is in here, and we don't know how many more <laughs> from his top fifty maybe populating Three. this. Three, <laughs> Three oh, wow. of Max's top fifty of all oh, time. My goodness. Um, so we, yeah, we have some very tough decisions to make here. We brought him up once already. I think this is where Snake Pilskin goes. I have Escape from New York at five as well. One at Snake Pliskin. Pliskin. Sorry. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I have The Fog here. The Fog. So I have I have Escape from New York higher up just because uh, I think, I honestly think Escape from New York is the most John Carpenter film mm. of all time. You look at what he has done in horror, in action, in pop culture, and no matter, and no matter what it is, and Escape from New York, I feel like, was his playground. I mean, it's super straightforward. He gets the coolest, the coolest of the cool people. He gets Kurt Russell and Isaac Hayes <laughs> in this movie together. Uh, you, you get the the bad from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Von Cleef. You get this amazing crew together. Super straightforward 80s film to be set 10, 8, 9 years in the future. Like, not even a full decade. But enough to be in the future of like, oh, wow. Like, who knows what would happen? (laughs) And there's just something about the soundtrack and the feeling. And the fact that I, I don't know what it is. I think it might be this movie. But the idea of that, the like the anti-hero needs to talk like this mm. oh yeah the name's snake <laughs> the 
the name's Pliskin at the end. Like, you know, as he's like taking a drag from the cigarette, it's just the fucking coolest thing ever. Like Kurt Russell is so badass in this movie. And it's also one of the most eighties movies of all time. The, the score for whenever, uh, the, the, the gang shows up, you know, the main game, the doom, doom, camp, doom, 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 camp, like the, like disco music, the chandeliers on the fucking front of the hood. Yeah. This movie is like in its own genre. It, it kind of started doing the trope of the post apocalyptic in the familiar universe, like taking what you know and turning it on its head. Cloverfield, obviously, its trailer self admitted, like, yeah, we we wanted to reenact the the poster of Escape from New York of the Statue of Liberty head in the middle of an intersection, right, right. Mm-hmm. even though that's not even in the movie. Of even Escape from about, New York. Even think about like the Purge movies now and stuff. That's basically, I mean, it's a maximum security prison, but where they're just kind of like. That's lawless. Yeah. Everything that's mm-hmm. happening over there. Mad us Max. Is the, too, right? is the, well, no, and the, yeah, and, and that's Max. a cool thing too. It's like Manhattan, like this familiar thing is now just complete chaos. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then it, you look at I Am Legend. You look at The Last of Us on TV right now. Like it's such a cool thing to look at of like this familiar thing turned on its head, throwing this complete badass character whose gun is an Uzi with the longest silencer, weird barrel, and a scope on it. <laughs> Makes no sense. Never runs out of bullets it's or changes the, the magazine. Yeah, it's, it's the future. So this movie is just so bonkers, but for me, like, it is so much more enjoyable because of that. It is, like, it especially with John Carpenter doing the music with this. Like, not the suspenseful horror or like oh creepy i don't want to hear this like the oh wow like what's what's gonna happen now what's gonna blow up who's gonna turn on who like there was just something else about this film which is why i had it higher up than the what we're else gonna talk about so i i had escape from new york a little bit higher the reason why i have this at five is because the four that are left one has an asterisk but I think you would still probably put it in the horror section. Maybe if you had a sci-fi section in your video store, you would put it in the sci-fi section. But I think the top four, when I think of John Carpenter, I, I put this in my review actually on Letterbox. I want my John Carpenter with a heavy, heavy flavoring of horror, mm. just like a dash of sci-fi, dash of action. So the other four that we've yet to talk about, I think all hit that horror benchmark. And so for me personally, my personal taste just has... um, escape from new york at five not by any fault of its own but i think just because the other four are elevated more because i do think that carpenter's the best at making horror films yeah yeah i i I think if if, he's better at making horror films but i i do 100 percent agree with you grant i think that that this is probably the best production design on any of his movies Mm. the world that we've built is now maybe he's built some more fun worlds or more interesting worlds, but yeah. this is probably the more most fun, actually. It is. Yeah. I had this at number three. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I had the fog at number three. Which is where I have the fog. Yeah. And wow. So then do you, do we all have the same number four then? Uh, probably I, not, because I, my number four, <laughs> and now this shouldn't come to any surprise, because the more I talk about this movie, the more I visit this movie, the more I think about this movie, it just lessens its impact. And its effect on me, but I have Halloween at four. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I have Halloween at two. Yeah, I have, I have Prince of Darkness at four. As I have and Prince I'm sure of that's Darkness where you at four. Have it. Yeah. yeah. Um. 
Yeah, if we're going to have the discussion between the fog and escape. Listen, escape is probably going to be the the more known commodity, uh, definitely. And and the fog is is the fog is just such a good ghost story uh and it is so again, you're kind of in one town. It's very simple. It's very you know, it's it's not particularly scary. I would even say escape might be a little bit more scary uh, just because of the setting. But something about the fog is is a warm blanket. Oh, my God. You just took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) I love I think the fog's a perfect movie. It's it's it is just it it is so simple. Um, Yeah, I I love the fog. I fucking love the fog. It's it's kind of an. In, an intangible love too. Like I can't quite put my finger mm-hmm. on on what actually happens in the movie that I love. Aside from Tom Atkins drinking and driving, <laughs> yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah. That I mean, Adrian Barbeau has one of the coolest movie jobs of all time. Mm. Disc jockey up in a, in lighthouse. a lighthouse. Hello, Antonio Bay. You know, second best Bay setting of all time, just behind <laughs> Bodega and the Birds. Um, top five Bay movies coming up soon. Um, but yeah, and the, the the pirate ghosts, everything is just like, oh my gosh! And her voice, Adrian Barbeau's voice, I mm. think is is almost like what does it for me. Like at the end when she's just like, a strange thing happened in Antonio Bay tonight or whatever, and just back on the radio, and she's like, I just love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I, I love it too, but I'm I'm also okay. I'm the the top five. I think putting something of the sci-fi genre action piece a little higher up mm-hmm. makes sense to me as well. Um, God damn it, <laughs> the fog, it's gone I, in I, our hearts. I'm hiding my sins in the wall. <laughs> If I do this, if I do this, I'm hiding my yeah. sins in the wall here by putting it this low. That's one of my favorite lines ever. Oh, my grandfather sins in, in the wall. Grab, um, grabs a bottle. But, you know, listen, and uh, I, on Silver Screams this week. Yeah, you guys are matching them up. We're matching up the, the Fog God, and the Fog remake. Terrible. The remake is horrendous. And you know, I'm I'm gonna go to bat for the fog all week. Yeah. Um but again, I I do understand how escape is probably I think it's more meaningful. Yeah, it's it's definitely more meaningful. The fog is like the the one that people don't talk about mm-hmm. that yeah. is that is in the top five. Um I'm okay with the fog being at five. There's something about then the question becomes go ahead. I was going to say, there's something about a character like Snake Plissken where he gets introduced to us, the audience, but then also the fact that for some reason, for for no reason, everyone on the island knows who Snake Plissken Mm. is. Oh, yeah. And they're like, oh, my, you're Snake Plissken? Oh, like, there's something about, like, that. That character, like John Carpenter, like I think he's, that is the Lone Ranger, right? Well, like, no, and I think that is the yeah, other. He's, he's John Wayne coming mm-hmm. into town, yeah. Other than Michael Myers, there is no other universal character known by mainstream people that mm. have never seen these movies, other than Snake Plissken and Michael Myers attached to John Carpenter. Yeah, 
I feel like all the other movies, like, yeah, you would know who Kurt Russell plays in the thing. You would know who, you know, these guys play in this, that, and the other. Or like, you know, Christine is some killer car. You know that the Village of the Damn Kids are bad news, but yeah. those aren't like. But you yeah, see you Kurt Russell with an eye patch right. on and a machine gun. You know who that is. Mm-hmm. You know who Michael Myers with the mask, like John Carpenter. Like, I think that is what elevates Escape a little bit is that he created something. Yeah. Sh- Sure, Escape from L.A. is dog shit, mm-hmm. but Escape from New- though. intentionally, yeah, 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 kind of intentionally. But Escape from New York is kind of like the, it's the, you it's, know, well, it's he, the new Clint Eastwood. Well, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. He he might be like one of the best antiheroes ever created. Yeah. Okay, so here's the question then: Does Escape move up to three, and do we put Prince of Darkness at four? Should come as no surprise that Prince of Darkness is my number one, but I yeah. obviously know it's not going to be number one. So, I, I have Prince of Darkness at four. Four. I have it at four as well. However, rewatching it last night, like that, again, kind of like The Fog, I feel like it's definitely an overlooked, you know, I, I feel like the top three like mainstream Carpenter movies are the thing Halloween escape. When I rewatched Prince of Darkness this week, I did it with Carpenter's commentary Mm. and it's the movie that John himself is the most happy for Mm. the fact that it's had sort of a resurgence Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I think he feels like it is one of his best ideas that he's ever put on paper and then screen. And also it does this thing once again, where like it puts this cast of characters together that, we don't get any exposition on them. Right. We learn that some of them are students studying quantum physics and mechanics. We meet a few others who we understand. Okay. Yeah. They have a job working at, you know, with this heavy machinery and everything else. And we get a little bit of backstory on even like Donald Pleasant's character and Victor Hong as well, who or Victor Wong and Bikram. But, but it's still just like not enough to make you worry about, what else is going on other than like Satan is in the basement of this church and it's just, it's literally just like the thing where it's just like, there's an alien in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And now, yes, you can say that guys like Keith David and Kurt Russell are are more personable and and Wilford Brimley certainly is more boisterous (laughs) in the thing and stuff like that. But it's basically the same thing where you understand that, it doesn't matter what's happened before this story has started. And it doesn't really matter what happened after the story. And that's why it's part of the, this, you know, Prince of Darkness is in the apocalypse trilogy as well. Just because basically if this thing gets out, these guys' lives don't matter. Everyone on planet earth is in trouble. And I just love that about it. And I love that it's the inverse of the thing where the entire time that we're watching the thing, we don't know who has been quote unquote infected, who the thing is. And this movie, it's more of a traditional horror film. I think it is his scariest movie where we are seeing people turn Mm. and like some of the body horror in this movie is fantastic. I think it's an awesomely eighties movie. Mm. (laughs) Alice Cooper of course is great. And the score literally runs for like an hour and 30 minutes in the the background. The, the, like the, I don't know. It's, it's up there with the thing music. Like mm-hmm. it, watching it last night, it was like, wow, this music is fucking amazing. And the opening he credit actually, sequence is so good too. Yeah. It's like 10 minutes long. And I think it might be Donald Pleasant's, like it might be his best movie. His straight, best like his straight up performance. Obviously yeah. like Loomis is iconic, but sure. as far as yeah, best performance. Yeah. Watching this for the first time was like, 
crazy because like you said, like it was my big takeaway from the end of it. I had no weight on any of these characters. There was no, I think that's totally okay. Yeah, no, it is. It, like it's, it's one of those things that like kind of makes a good horror movie of like, Oh wow. Like who's going to die. It doesn't matter where there's like, there's movies like Halloween where you're with Laurie Strode and you want her to survive. You're with her. You're, you're with these people you want them to. And this is kind of like, you have a little bit between two characters, but not really. There's not enough to get you really invested. So you're just kind of watching this thing. And then the, the last 15 minutes are like a huge, huge payoff. It's so well done. It's one of those movies to where, like we talk about movies we don't want to be like remade, but I want John Carpenter to like while he's still alive, be like remake Prince of Darkness, do it again, but like with technology now and do something. I don't know, or maybe the sequel or or just a new rendition. I I don't know. There there's something so captivating about this idea and the people like analyzing the equations Ooh, and then it's like such a smart movie. And I don't want that to sound like. <laughs> you know, pompous or anything like that, but it's just so cool. The marriage between science and and, and religion and horror in this movie. And those are like my, some of my favorite ingredients when a movie actually feels like it's respecting you as an audience. And also like just kind of playing a card, throwing a pitch that you haven't seen before. Well, this is also like one of Carpenter's like odes to one of his like inspirations of an artist named Neil Keneal. And the the idea of, like, science exploring the paranormal and people falling to an ancient evil and, like, rediscovering things and, like, the New Age view on what could have been, like, what they did, you know, what was considered magic in in the old times. And, like, this was, like, such a cool, like, idea of him to, like, dive in on on this idea to where it's, like, I don't know why he stopped and, like didn't do more of the like this is such a like i really enjoy this film i just wanted more which is why i was let down by it where it's like by the end of it you're just kind of like well yeah i mean when that when the hand is going through the mercury the other side of the mirror whatever and then that giant hand starts reaching back you are like i want to see what that thing is and it's also and i loved and and it's one of my favorite film techniques of what they did and such a cool way of filming it of like the fact that like it's a huge like claw in the water and then as it's coming out obviously the magnification is lower and it looks more like a realistic kind of like hoof devil hand like devil mm-hmm. hand Hoved. and yeah. you're like whoa what is going on but then also how they filmed <laughs> how they filmed the like the slight of the water and the light coming through and the people like like reaching and going like like in like such a brilliant, simplistic way of filming, like it's just classic filmmaking mm-hmm. that John Carpenter, like it doesn't matter like when he started in the seventies to this movie now, like he just implements classic practical filmmaking and it's it's fantastic. Okay, so escape or prince at four. I think we go fog at five, escape at four, prince at three. I'm certainly okay with that. I understand. I also, I, though, sure. yeah, like, uh, for aware, I feel like we're almost we're doing do- that out of awareness sake. Like, that's really elevating Prince of Darkness, and hopefully more people check it out. But I also sort of think that it 
might be blasphemous to put Prince above Escape, Escape just because it's so iconic. However, if we're doing like the John Carpenter films, like Prince of Darkness, I feel like is a more Carpenter film than Escape is a Carpenter film. Well, it's a it's a horror film. Yeah, it's and, a that's, horror and that's why I have it higher. And the, where I think Escape is like the most Carpenter film ever because it, it encapsulates everything. everything. Yeah. However, what he is known for, what we're going to get into in these last three films, you know, like, so we're, I... We're down it, to two after we rank these. So, yeah, I feel like it's the majority here to where we have Escape at four and Prince at three. You did it. I did. (laughs) Escape. I'm fine with it because I literally had them swapped at at three and four, but. Okay. Which then leaves Halloween versus the thing for number one, which is pretty simple in my mind. It wants to be us. Come on. Halloween. Listen, Listen, Halloween. Halloween Halloween would have been number four on my list, and I would have probably actually because yeah, I would have. I did have Prince in the fog above it. Yeah, and on the right day, you could even convince me that Escape from New York should go above it. But at the same time, like legacy speaking, it's one of the biggest franchises of all time. It's one of the most influential movies of all time. It starts his career. It starts his career, basically. Yeah. However, the thing is his masterpiece. I think everything comes together in the thing. Everything that he he is wanted and known for, you know, we're we're talking about sci-fi stuff with Escape. We're talking about straight up horror with like Prince of Darkness and Halloween. I think it all and, and also body horror with the practical effects and then the yeah, and it all just like perfectly blends in the thing. Now, granted, I am extremely biased. Well, here's the thing about this whole episode <laughs> is nothing is set in stone. And I'm glad that we've gotten all these films out because now I can vocalize this. We're like the thing. Yeah, sure. Great film. Max, I love that you love it. But at the same time, not only is it like a great film, but it has like the best John Carpenter soundtrack and has the best. However, body and it's not even John it's Carpenter, even John on the Carpenter music. Yeah. On the music. It's Ennio. It's Ennio. But Ennio, but they Ennio work Marker. together. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're they like any like that's the thing. And it's, it's also Ennio like without, doing a Carpenter score. Right. But it's also but it's thing. also it's Carpenter like with Alan he did. Right. But it's it's the it, but like here's the thing with Carpenter though. Like he's a part of the music. If it's Ennio or it's Alan Howarth mm. or it's him. It's him. He he's a he's not like, hey, why don't you make some music? It's not like he's gonna be like, what right. do you got for me? He's gonna be in that studio, right? You know, because it has the John Carpenter feel to it. Well, and I think because he didn't write it, he didn't score it like directly. He focuses so much on the on the directing, and that that just sharpens his directing so much in this film. Well, especially at where it is in his career. Mm. that he's able to take of what worked and then also is like what we see beyond that, what he does beyond the thing of like, Oh wow, the thing was so successful. He continues to do those things. The thing is, um, the, thing the that's best great movie, is the thing actually wasn't that successful and he continued to do his own thing. Mm. And now it's become this cult classic. True. Right? Th- th- then that's what I mean by yeah. that. It's but like it that- came out the same day as Blade Runner, which those two films came out a month after E.T. And so they both kind of bombed. 
in the theater. And I love, and we've talked about Ridley a bunch kind of oddly enough on this episode, but the fact that Ridley kept doing his own thing and Carpenter kept doing it, their own thing. Yeah. That's why we like, that's why we love these guys so much. I will, I will say I do have the thing at number one. I, 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 and as do I. Yeah. How Halloween is the iconic is the, you know, the reason why we know John Carpenter, why it's the, every man knows John Carpenter, you know, the theme, you know, the mask, mm-hmm. you know, the name, you know, the, the style, you know, the music, you know, the synth, you know, the eighties, you know, you could ask somebody had in like what's Haddonfield and they'd be like, that's the town in Halloween. Yeah. Like yeah. people know so much about this movie. You can go to escape from New York or you can go to the thing and you can swap the soundtracks with any of his other movies and they still might fit a little bit. Mm. And that's the thing about his movies and his style is that he has his, no matter which way he goes, no matter which way he goes, it's going to be effective. I don't and think the you guy can knows switch what he's doing. To the, I don't think you can switch Halloween with anything. I, I think, think Halloween can. is contained to Michael and the shape. You, you, you don't think that if you put the thing, dum dum. The thing, I dum, think you dum. can put. The thing you can no, put. Yeah. No, I'm saying. Halloween going to the thing. Oh, I think that would work fantastic. Halloween going to Escape from New York. I don't know. Maybe. Also, I think Escape from New York going to Halloween. I think that works. I think that's scary as hell. Is that Ben Tramer over there? Why is Disco following me everywhere? That's horrifying. Hey, creep. I fucking hate Halloween. There I said it. I, I, of course, I love, love Halloween. Halloween. I love Halloween, but my God, I, it's so silly. It's just so silly. It is. It's so funny. Well, you know what? Halloween has become almost like, because I, I feel like we've just watched it so much. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I like Rob Zombie's Halloween Dad's a police Halloween officer, so and you just hotboxed your car, and you go, hi, Dad. He's like, someone broke into the hardware store. <laughs> Michael Myers knows how to drive. And Michael Somehow. Myers knows how to drive. Somehow he knows how to drive. Why wouldn't he? Because he's been in an asylum for... The right ones go, the left ones stop. <laughs> Figure it out pretty quick. He also drove... We drove all the way through the night with like one nurse. <laughs> and and Donald Pleasance, who's a doctor, to go pick this guy up. No backup. And then he drives all the way back down. You tell me this car didn't run out of gas. Like he knows how to pump gas. Donald Pleasant. Where did how did he pay for this gas? Outside the house. For <laughs> so hours. Funny. For hey, hours. get out of there, kids. Yeah, for hours. <laughs> I was like, is that a dog? He got hungry. <laughs> so good. But it's so iconic. So it we is. have to have it up there. Of course it's iconic. I feel bad having said that on the record that I hate Halloween. I don't <laughs> hate Halloween. It's just. It, no, it's just, on the record. Now. It is. And guess what? You can just poke holes through it left and right. Of course. Turn it into Swiss cheese. But, you know, it is. It's one of the five most important horror movies of it all is. time. Yeah. So it, it's it's very deserving of the number two spot. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Potential. Final John Carpenter rankings. 18, Memories of an Invisible Man. 17, Starman. 16, Ghost of Mars. 15, Dark Star. 14, The Ward. 13, Vampires. 12, Village of the Damned. 11, Escape from L.A. Into the top 10. Assault on Precinct 13. 9, Big Trouble in Little China. 8, They Live. 7, In the Mouth of Madness. 6, Christine. 5, The Fog. Four, Escape from New York. Three, Prince of Darkness. Two, Halloween. Number one, The Thing. How, the do thing. We, how do we feel about that? 
Is the ward too high? Do we put Dark Star above the ward? Above the ward. I feel like the below the top 10 doesn't really matter. The thing I'm focusing on is I think maybe my biasy got in the way of uh, they live over Big Trouble. Big Trouble. I think those may need to be switched. You think Big Trouble should be at Eight. eight and they live at nine? Yeah. Okay. That that's just my like now that I'm thinking back on it, looking at it, like for like, if we're looking at what John Carpenter did, like I love they live. I love it. Mm-hmm. But big trouble is a little bit more universally. Are we overvaluing in the mouth of madness? Could both of those be in front of in the mouth of madness? They could. Um, I they would. Could. I I personally did, but I would have no problem. In Even though I really like this. In the Mouth of Madness at nine. nine. Big Trouble in London, China at seven. And they live eight. days at eight then, technically. Yeah, just flip those you two. You flip-flop Big Trouble and In the Mouth. I think, I'm I think that's right. I like that. that. That feels a little better. Okay. In the Mouth of Madness, very good. but Seems very Carpenter. Yeah. As Snake Plissken would say. <laughs> I think I think we got it right in the top six. Christine, The Fog, Escape, Prince of Darkness. The fact that it's just up there, I think we did right by that. And then Halloween and the Thing have to be one and two. Yeah. I didn't say this before, but I my favorite thing about Escape from New York is that Snake's first line is, call me Snake. And his last line is, call me Pliskin. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like. He but does, what the he does that in Escape what, of, uh, what from happens? LA as well. Get you yeah. an eye patch, and I think yeah. this is a Halloween costume for you. I think I, think I could do, grow the hair by out out a by bit. October. I can get yeah. the hair out by yeah. then. Get sure. the snake never, skin. Yeah, never seen a snake costume either. Uh-uh. You'd crush that. You know what, guys? I'll be Wilford Brimley. I was going to say, give me a thin character for you. <laughs> Who are you being? Wilford Brimley. Yeah, are you kidding I me? love it. I know what it wants to do. If you run around with an axe, I'm just gonna stick you in one of the rooms during the party, and you can say, I can, <laughs> I'm okay, I'm okay now. now. <laughs> I'm cold. I want to come in. Or when he's when he's dying, when he's <laughs> taking apart the the thin body, and he's just like, oh, oh, no, oh, just love Wilford. I'll be I'll be Tom Atkins. He's he's. I think he's like 100%. my age in the thing too. No, I think he's 32. No, he's like 47 <laughs> when that movie was made or something. You tell me we're doing a John Carpenter party. Oh, John Carpenter themed Halloween, Halloween party. party. I'll be there. That's awesome. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to start. Darkness. No, I'll have to start drinking again. I'll be Tom Atkins <laughs> in the fog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Atkins shows up in uh, Escape from New York. He does. I totally forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Ernest Bornine. I didn't even get yeah. to mention Cabby. Cabby. Cabby, come on. We haven't mentioned Harry Dean Stanton either. Yeah. You know, um, Christine, Christine and Escape from New York. Really yep. good stuff. A lot of uh, The whole crew, crew man. Crew. You know, um, Dean Cundy, longtime DP of his. He Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill. And um, uh, who's his other longtime producer? Larry Franco. Mm. Yeah. Larry, Larry Franco was in every movie that i watched mm. for this episode yeah his his financial backing deborah hill's financial backing really important there um his crew is just you know they ride for him everyone loves this guy you've never heard a bad thing about john carpenter which is just great 
Um, and you, love, you love that when a guy that no makes bullshit. horror movies, they're yeah. like, oh, he's the nicest yeah. guy. Well, and, and not even that he's nice. He's just no bullshit. Yeah. You know, where yeah. like some of these guys, you know, like Freakin's got his own stuff going on. <laughs> a lot of these different guys, you know, who have been making movies for 40, 45 years, you've heard that, you know, they can be temperamental at times right. or sometimes they just go completely off the reservation. Carpenter, by all accounts. Just recently cool became guy. a grandfather, too. Yeah. And Grandpa he, Whore. Yeah, he said, call me Grandpa a Whore. A great follow on Twitter, John Grandpa Carpenter. Grandpa Gore? I no, love gra- Grandpa Horror. Grandpa Horror? Yeah. Grandpa Horror? I'm that. calling him Grandpa Genre. Yeah. Grandpa, Grandpa Genre. Genre. GG. Grandpa Horror. GG. Uh, I think that's great. <laughs> love it. Okay, so I think we did it. One more time, we'll just go back through the our, our redefined top 10, which now goes Assault on Precinct 13, In the Mouth of Madness, They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, Christine, The Fog, Escape from New York, Prince of Darkness, Halloween, and The Thing. That feels right. I, I, feels I feel good so about good. that. I think we did it. Feels so good. I love it. Okay, well, thank the two of you. Let <laughs> me thank the two of you for your energy on today's episode. I do feel good about this one. Um, I think we got it right. And then, of course, speaking about getting it right, we already mentioned that tomorrow morning the Oscar nominations come out. So we will be back next week to discuss those recently announced nominations. We'll talk about what the Academy nailed, the head scratchers, and of course the snubs. We'll dissect them all as we close out the month of January and begin February with one of our most anticipated shows of the year. February is, of course, also Black History Month. And as you heard at the top of this episode, our friends at the Grand Cinema have an amazing three-film series coming to town the final three Fridays of February. So be sure to grab your tickets to that one. You guys are going to come see Do the Right Thing with me? Absolutely. Cannot wait to see that on the big screen. One of my only like top five, top ten movies that I've yet to see. Yeah. Yeah. In a theater. So I'm really excited about that. I'm really happy for what the Grand's doing this month. Um, So yeah, grab your tickets to that. Of course, follow the three of us on Letterboxd to see what we are watching between episodes. And in the meantime, we'll see you at the movies. Uh, also, uh, I have an opportunity this weekend to attend PodFest 2023, uh, in Orlando. I will be flying out on Wednesday. I will be there till Sunday. I don't know if we have any listeners down there, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're around, you want to meet up and talk movies. Lyndon, make the trip from Tampa. I know. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Please, uh, please hit me up in the DMs. There you go. And in that meantime, always remember to drink movies and watch beer.